You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal, including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. I think there is a significant risk of what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, one of the key subjects of, well, the global news agenda at the moment is certainly coming here uh, to the UK as well. Two further patients in England have tested positive for coronavirus, bringing the total to 15. The Department of Health says the patients have caught COVID-19 in Italy and Tenerife and they've been transferred to specialist NHS infection centres. It comes as the number of new cases outside China has exceeded the number inside the country for the first time. Former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt says we need to prepare for the worst case scenarios. We are in such a globalised world, as you can see by the way it's spread, that everyone has to take precautions. Even though the mortality rate at 1-2-3% sounds low, if millions and millions of people get this virus, that is a lot of deaths. And that was Jeremy Hunt, former Health Secretary. Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is the Labour MP, Debbie Abrahams. She's previously been chair of the Labour Party's Health Committee, Shadow Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, and Shadow Minister for Disabled People. Debbie, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, Let's start off with the coronavirus. I mean, you you have experience in dealing with health issues uh, in terms of uh, of administration. Uh, Do you get the sense at the moment that the government does have a handle on handling the possible effects of coronavirus here? Uh, I think possibly we have been a little bit slow uh, off off the mark. Um, Having said that, I think we have a a health system which is um, very professional, very uh, experienced in emergency preparedness uh, for events like like these. We always knew that this was inevitable, so I, I believe things are in place. But given that we have a, an already stretched NHS, I think this is putting even more strain uh, on on staff and the system as a whole. Debbie, do not worry about that strain, because if you look at every winter, the pressure on the NHS is immense. This looks like something an order of magnitude higher. No, absolutely, and that's, that's why... <laughs> That's what I've just uh, just said. Um, it, it is a serious uh, issue, and each individual needs to, to take precautions and, and make sure that they are protecting themselves as well as protecting others. Um, but the key thing is we have an underfunded NHS. We have 
bed occupancy rates, which is going to make it very, very difficult to, to deal with um, additional demand, which we know we are going to get as, uh, as things get worse, unfortunately, before they get better. But Jeremy Hunt was right to say, I mean, the, the virulency, in other words, the death rate associated uh, with, uh, with uh, COVID-19 is low. It's just slightly higher than flu, but most people don't realize that people die from flu. Uh, what is particularly alarming is the infectious uh, rate, uh, infectious rate of, of this particular virus, which um, ultimately it may mutate, so it may become even more virulent. Now, Debbie, uh, one of the issues with this virus is the, the, the mortality rate is, is relatively low, but it does seem to hit the weakest in society, the weakest in health terms, the weakest in health provision terms. Now, I know you have a strong uh, issue about the way in which people on benefits, people perhaps at the poor end of society, are treated in this country anyway. I guess this is perhaps an even bigger threat if they don't have access to the right sort of medical care. Absolutely. I mean, some of the issues that I was talking about in the House earlier this week, which is uh, around the deaths of Social Security claimants. And, yes, people who have uh, both physical but also in terms of mental health conditions. And one of the issues that they have been facing is not being able to afford their prescriptions um, if, for example, um, their Social Security support stops. Uh, This is really serious. And I have... uh, People are dying as a consequence of the actions of um, the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, it, is, it is now increasingly apparent from the evidence, um, not just of medical professionals, but the National Audit Office has, has expressed concerns that there is no lessons being learnt by the department. This has been going on for a number of years now. I've been ra- raising this repeatedly. Um, and there seems to be no change in behaviour from the department. So I've been calling for an independent inquiry um, so that people who do die, are the, the circumstances in, uh, from which they die, are examined independently so that proper lessons can be learned. This, this cannot be allowed to, to carry on as it has been doing. And more, bri- more broadly, with universal credit, it's in a state of flux. What do you want to see implemented there? Oh, goodness, where, where do you start? There are so many things wrong with universal credit from, you know, very structural aspects of how it was designed. So, for example, there's a built-in five-week wait before people get their, uh, their first payment. That is escalating debt, it's escalating rent arrears. It's one of the contributory factors uh, around homelessness. I think it's two-thirds of, of, of local authorities predict uh, an increase in homelessness as a result of the rollout of universal credit. Um, it, we know it's not adequate enough in terms of when you compare it to uh, legacy um, benefits, but particularly it is disabled people again who have been hit. Um, they, they are one of the losers from universal credit. It, it isn't as generous as, as previous um, social security support has been. And also single, single parents as, as, as well. We've got an escalating... Um, growth in in terms of poverty uh, for children and disabled people. This is not how 
the fifth richest country in the world should should be behaving. Well, all right, well, Debbie, one of the issues here clearly is you have ideas about this, but in order to implement those ideas, or in order to be part of that, your party needs to be in government. You've been out of power now for a decade. A key part of being in power, I guess, is winning elections, which depends to some extent on the party leader. As you are very well aware, there are debates going on. I think there's a TV One debate tonight between the candidates for the leadership of the Labour Party. You're on record as backing Keir Starmer. What do you think needs to come out of these kind of debates to try and get the thing into a point where people will be driven forward towards selecting the right person? Um, Well, I... In, in terms of how the party is operating this election, um, I, to be honest, I haven't been closely involved with that. Um, I, there have been some areas of concern in terms of, for example, access to um, to information enabling all uh, candidates to uh, compete on a on a level playing uh, field. Um, but I think, I mean, I'm backing Keir because I think he's the best candidate. He's the one who has the potential of not just uniting the party, but uniting the, the country. His experience and his track record, I knew him before he became an MP as Director of Public Prosecutions and how he, he behaved towards my constituents who had, uh, you know, who had been victims um, following um, their son's murder was exemplary. He is an, um, not just an amazing politician, but an amazing man. And as I say, he he ticks many of the boxes that I had in terms of the criteria for a good leader, but particularly uh, around leading a political part a party, which is like you know you mentioned my my health background, and I was at, at a very senior level. He is one of the best leaders that I think uh, we have the. You know, the, the uh, opportunity to elect. And Debbie, you talk about his ability to bring the country together. I'm particularly mm. interested in the, the part of the country who are more socially conservative than we have perhaps thought. And we sort of learnt this through the Brexit vote and then through the election at the end of last year. How can he bring them back into the fold? Because they are, uh, socially at least, uh, a lot further to the right than a typical Labour member or Labour supporter would be. I think we need to recognise where we are, all are and look at the... Um, the, the driving factors um, that have meant that we have lost support in, and many, um, you know, in terms of our, our former Labour supporters, as you described, socially conservative, and you know, we mustn't forget that um, in addition to people on the lowest incomes, people on slightly higher incomes are also doing, you know, faring worse than they were say in 2010. Everybody is under pressure. If you look at the sort of a collective um, loss in income uh, and support through um, through through um, different services and so on, people are under pressure, and that hasn't been recognised. I think, as I say, Keir is the person, not only in terms of how he leads, but also in terms of the policy offer that we will develop that will uh, address that. Can I, I know you're going to come on to ask me about uh, the recent trip. That's exactly my next point. I was going to ask you. Well, let, let me move, if I may, and ask then, because you have been, uh, we, we know that you were not allowed into India. Your visa was revoked. You are someone who campaigns on many issues, not least uh, the issue of Kashmir. Can you just explain what happened and why? So um, I'm chair of the all-party group for Kashmir, uh, which is concerned about the um, human rights uh, issues on both sides of the line of control. You, I know, will be aware of the United Nations reports. There have been two consecutive reports uh, raising concerns in 2018 and 19, 
about uh, Azad Kashmir, but uh, but predominantly about Jammu and Kashmir, which is the Indian administered. Uh, yeah, the Azad part is the part administered by Pakistan. Indeed. Um, so I uh, wrote to the Indian High Commissioner to try to ensure that we had a delegation um, to India, uh, and I wrote to the Pakistan High, High Commission uh, requesting uh, access to uh, Azad Kashmir as well. The Pakistani High Commission responded, and uh, we were able to, to visit and had a very interesting uh, visit, which uh, probably we won't have the opportunity to discuss in, in detail, but it, it did. It was a very positive, and there's uh, a report that will be coming out of that. But unfortunately, I wasn't given the opportunity, either, either as an individual or as chair of a group, to visit uh, India, and particularly uh, Jammu and Kashmir. I do hope the Indian High Commissioner reconsiders this. I think for the largest democracy in the world to be refusing access to a parliamentarian to see for themselves happening is, is, is a shame. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. Boris Johnson is setting out the UK's stall on his trade talks with the EU. Some people see it as a collision course. Uh, he's setting out the red lines before the talks kick off for, for form informally on uh, next week. Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, Michael Gove, says the government will walk away from the negotiating table if it's not clear that a free trade agreement can be secured. We respect the EU's sovereignty, autonomy and distinctive legal order, and we expect them to respect ours. We will not accept nor agree to any obligations where our laws are aligned with the EU or the EU's institutions, including the Court of Justice. Now, the EU says no deal will be possible unless the UK signs up to what it calls a level playing field. That's meant to ensure the UK doesn't gain a competitive advantage by undercutting the bloc's regulations. And then news breaking throughout the course of the morning, Heathrow Airport's controversial plans to build a third runway have been thrown into doubt after a court ruling. The government's decision to expand the airport has been deemed unlawful because it didn't take climate commitments into account, according to the Court of Appeal. The judges said that in future, a third runway could go ahead as long as it fits with the UK's climate policy. Heathrow was said it will challenge the decision, but the government has not yet lodged an appeal. And here's a nice piece from the Daily Telegraph today. It's a piece by Alistair Heath. Um, let's say it's a little controversial. The headline is, Our arrogant, overrated civil service must now face a political reckoning. Far from being too radical, Alistair says, Boris Johnson's been too timid. Who governs this country? It's no longer Eurocrats in Brussels or judges in Luxembourg, which is a great relief. But who in Britain is taking back control? Will real power lie with the elected politicians, assisted by government employees who work for them and for the manifestos on which they were elected? Or will it be hoarded by 
a shameless, self-satisfied Whitehall nomenclatura that has convinced itself it's the true permanent government of Britain. Alistair says Brexit isn't enough. Politicians need to take back control to renew our democratic culture, reintroduce accountability and improve the quality of the state. They need to be forced to take responsibility even when they don't want it. They must become their own masters, he says, working on behalf of the electorate, not spokespersons for out-of-control departments. They need to relearn to be managers, moulding the system to their commands. They should hire their own people, not inherit hostile teams. That could be something, I think, perhaps directed at Sajid Javid. I could be wrong. Quite potentially, and you can't deny that he knows his audience, this man, writing, of course, in The Telegraph. But let's move it on. Let's talk about the flooding. Several parts of the UK, it's being hit there. It's still dominating the headlines. Flooding across the River Severn is expected to get even worse today, with more rain on the way as some barriers struggle to hold water. Water is two metres deep in some areas and there have been emergency evacuations in Worcestershire after some defences buckled. And there are fears that could also happen in Ironbridge where people are being told to leave their homes. So for more, we're joined by David Demerit, Professor of Geography at King's College London. His work encompasses environmental politics and policy, especially in the construction and management of environmental risks. So this is exactly the conversation we want to have now. David, good to have you here. First of all, is the government doing enough on this? No. Uh, flooding is a is rated as the government's number one natural peril. Um, it's not news that flooding is going to Britain is vulnerable to flooding. Everyone knows that we're we're not doing enough. It was the Telegraph piece was very interesting. Ministers take back control, but as soon as there's a problem here, where's the prime minister? Where's the minister for flooding? We kind of pushed that this environment agency gets shoved to the front. The environment agency is hugely, you know, uh, some terrific people working really, really hard uh, without enough resources to get the job done. Well, what, are the, what resources do they need? What, what does the government need to give them to do the job? So for years now, the, government, the environment agency estimates of the average annual expected loss of flooding is about a billion pounds a year. So across England and Wales, on a given year, you'd expect to lose about a billion. That's not every year a billion. You know, some years it'll be five billion, and a couple of years it'll be no. It kind of averages out, and you look at what the government is spending. So I have the kind of latest report published from 2000 and September 2019. Uh, the total real-term spending uh, in fiscal 2018-19 was 808 billion. Uh, 808 million, I should say. Uh, the previous year it was 807. Uh, a year before it was 770 million. So it's just they're not spending enough. We're, That's what it comes a, to. we're not spending enough on the first order flood defenses. B, uh, in order the the kind of new policy framework is we want to have more sensitive, resilient development. We want to make sure that new ha- we all we need to have new housing, and it's a crowded country, uh, which means there are difficult trade-offs to be made. Local authority planning officers need to be able to decide, well, you know, are we going to, we could say, like, I think Luke Pollard, the labor opposition flood shadow guy, well, we're just not going to have any development in floodplains. So does that mean that we're not going to have any development in the city of Hull? Because the entire city is, so no, we're clearly not going to do that. We need to be able to pick and choose and do sensitive development. Sensitive development means local government needs to have the resources uh, to hire people to pick and choose and advise and regulate properly. But what's happened to local government over the last decade? It's had the absolute bejesus cut out of it. 
Um, so, uh, you know, ultimately that's a treasury decision because local government has almost no discretion about A, any of its revenue sources, B, I think local authorities in England and Wales have England have something like 1,429 statutory responsibilities. So if this is stuff by law that you have to do, it's no wonder that there's no money for, you know, kind of youth services or planning officers, kind of someone to sort of sort out the local drainage plans. We don't have an obligation to do that. So it's all hands to the pumps to kind of choose an apt, inapt metaphor, perhaps. And David, from an environmental perspective, is this getting worse? Because there's a lot of talk about climate change. How direct is the link with the sort of flooding that we're seeing? So it's quite difficult to attribute any particular event to climate change. But there are two things to say here. First of which is that heavy, more intense and more frequent and more precipitation over the winter uh, is consistent like we've been having this has been a wet old winter like 2014 was a wet 2013 2014 was a wet winter the climate projections are that we would see more of that um so this is the kind of thing that you might expect to see more of and not only more of but increasing in intensity as well possibly um, uh, at the level of kind of individual events. But mm. so the, the frequency and intensity of winter precipitation and thus flood risk is expected to go up. But the other point to make here is that this is, we have had this kind of event before. Back in 2000, not in Wales, in kind of Somerset and in the south of England more, the kind of l- geographic localization is different. But the idea that in winter we get flooding in the British Isles is that's not like a new thing. That's we've had that. That's what it means to live in these islands. So you but, need to cope with it. Yeah, well, exactly. And I suppose some people might say, well, if things are getting worse, if there's a point where what was a floodplain perhaps um, what well, well, is a floodplain now, but wasn't a floodplain perhaps before. I think it's the other way around. Right, whichever it's, way. Not, it's not a floodplain yeah. because we've urbanized it. Right. So that's another way in which the problem as, is worse yeah. because where it used to rain and the water would kind of soak away harmlessly, well, now there's a housing development there. And so if we're going to defend that housing development, that means the water is not going to go in my kitchen. It's probably going to go into yours. Uh. My, my point is that it, with, with climate change, if there is some sort of link, and, and I take on board your point, it's not a clear necessarily or, or, or absolute link. Does that mean that generally we're going to have to get used to more of this and therefore perhaps uh, we have to say certain areas aren't inhabitable that were inhabitable before? Yes. So hard choices are in order. Hard choices at the level of kind of government's going to have to spend more money. Government... And homeowners are going to, you know, so the people in Fish Lake have had a horrible, horrible winter. And it was just so yucky to have your house flooded. The cameras have now gone from there. But if your house was flooded back in December in Fish Lake, it will not be dry until July or August. It'll smell moldy. It'll be terrible. But the, the clue is in the name. The place is called Fish Lake. If you look at the Environment Agency flood map, it's this huge, big, blue splodge. And kind of, there were quotes of people in the, oh, well, you know, it's never flooded, never flooded here in the 10 or 15 years I've lived here. Okay, maybe so, but you are living in a place that is flood prone. 
Um, and there is only so much that can be done to defend you. And what's happening now with today's evacuations is efforts to put in extra defenses sometimes get overwhelmed. This old protection is not perfect. So government needs to do more. But uh, local authorities in terms of where we develop and homeowners in terms of where people choose to live need to recognize that uh, flooding is a reality uh, and we're going to have to live with it. In some countries like France, uh, we have kind of compulsory purchase. The state comes along and says, well, it is too it's too dangerous for you to live here and it's too expensive for us to kind of have to keep bailing you out. So with repetitive flood properties, we're just going to buy you out. In the United States, there's something called the National Flood Insurance Program. And something like a quarter of the money that they spend is spent on, you get flooded, we spend a bunch of, the public spends a bunch of money to fix your house. It gets flooded again and again and again. And at some point in time, it doesn't make any sense for you to live here. That's not a nice message. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.